pray together. Jesus, we praise you that you are the prize, you are the joy, and we thank you that you humbled yourself to bring us into your joy. Jesus, we long for you, we long for your kingdom, we thank you that you're teaching us to do that better, even through Matthew. We pray for this morning as we see more of you, Lord, we want to learn you know you in all of your character. Lord, we want to be a people who are following you, dependent on you, kind and compassionate, people desiring God's honor above all. Lord, we pray that you would bless this time this morning in your word. Pray that you would give me clarity, pray for strength, pray for all of us, that you would give us listening ears and a heart to obey. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You can go and open your Bibles and prepare to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. This morning we come to Matthew 9. Matthew 9, 9 through 17. Matthew 9, 9 through 17. And just a reminder, we stand for the reading of God's Word because we bring it, it's respect, respect for God speaking to us. He speaks to us through the pages of Scripture. And so we stand to honor him speaking to us. Matthew 9, 9 says this, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And the Pharisees saw this, and after, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, we have finished, a few weeks ago, we finished the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus demonstrated his authority in teaching, and then immediately we entered this section kind of cycling between uh, events and uh, then teaching, events and then teaching. In the events, we see Jesus' authority further displayed in his miracles, the authority he has over sickness, over uh, creation, over a variety of things. Uh, but then in that first cycle, we saw him have this authority, he healed a leper, he healed a, a centurion's servant from a distance. And then we had some teaching. We had some teaching about a couple uh, disciples who were coming to him, one who was already a disciple, one who was a would-be disciple, 
and Jesus instructed in, uh, on discipleship. He instructed on discipleship. In those cases, he said, um, if you're going to come near me, if you're going to follow me, it's not just for this, this time where I'm going across the Lake of Galilee. It's an ongoing following, and you have to understand that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It was a warning. And then for the disciple who was already following him and who wanted to go and do the secondary burial for his father, to honor his father, Jesus said, I'm more important, keep following me. And then we had, last week, the next cycle of miracles, where we really saw not just the miracles demonstrating Jesus' authority, but also revealing his identity, his identity as God in human flesh. Only God controls the wind and the waves. Only God can forgive sins. Only the Son of God can cast out demons. At the end of last week, he did, he really claimed through uh, forgiving man's sins, and not only healing the paralytic, but showing that he has the authority on earth to forgive sins, he showed he is not only the Son of Man, the Son of God, but God incarnate, the divine and human Son of Man together. And now we ended that cycle of miracles, and now we enter more teaching on discipleship, more teaching on discipleship. And really the main idea for this morning, what Matthew is showing us in this section, and what we need to take away is this, follow Jesus as a sinner into the joy of the new creation. Follow Jesus as a sinner into the joy of the new creation. Let's pick it up in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, now where is he? You remember last week he started in Capernaum, he went across the lake into the Gentile region of the Gadarenes, and then the Gadarenes didn't want him, so he goes back into Capernaum, and that's where he just healed the paralytic, but also demonstrating he has authority to forgive sin. So he, Jesus is in Capernaum, and he moves on from there, and he sees a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. Now, what's a tax booth? We, uh, we, we talked about this a little bit at the very beginning and the outset into um, the, the book of Matthew. We needed to understand who's writing this. We believe it's this Matthew, this, uh, the, the, the disciple or soon-to-be disciple of Jesus, and he was a tax collector, and he sat at this tax booth or tax office. What you have to understand is that there was a major route running from the north of Israel down through and by, right by, Capernaum. And also you have to remember that Capernaum's right on the lake of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. And what Matthew likely was, was he was a customs agent, a customs or toll agent. Uh, he's probably, what you have to also understand is since we're in the north of Israel, the north of Israel at this time, it's not directly controlled by the Romans. Now, the Romans are present, they're there, but the person in charge is Herod the Great's son, Herod Antipas, Herod Antipas. And so Herod Antipas is what they call a client king. The Romans have installed him as a client king over this area, and they've given him authority to collect taxes and tolls. So probably this uh, Matthew and this tax booth, it's, it's he's serving Herod Antipas. He's not serving the Romans directly. He is serving Herod Antipas. And as these goods would travel on the route near Capernaum, this major trade route, or as things came in uh, across the lake on the Sea of Galilee, what would happen is people would come to the toll booth and they would assess a tax. Now there was the official, like what you're supposed to charge, 
But the system, uh, really, we, we use the term tax collector. You might call it a tax contractor because these fo- folks would sign up to uh, collect tax. Uh, but the thing is, they, anything over and above what they were supposed to require went directly into their pockets. So it was a system subject to grave abuse. And it was well known because tax collectors were considered kind of outcasts in society. They were considered robbers uh, in general. So that's, that's what Matthew's job is. Not necessarily saying that Matthew uh, uh, was a thief in that sense and took more than he was supposed to, though it's possible, uh, but it was known for that. The institution of this custom or toll tax was, was, was known for that. But Jesus sees this. He sees Matthew sitting at his tax booth or his tax office, and he says to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. This is like what we saw in chapter 4. You remember chapter 4 where Jesus starts to call disciples. He's going alongside the Sea of Galilee. Uh, He sees people doing their fishing business, a couple different pairs of brothers, and he says, follow me. And the way the text presents it, they drop everything, they drop their livelihood, and they follow Jesus. And the idea of the call of discipleship here, follow me, it's the idea of of not just uh, begin following me, but begin and keep following me. Begin and keep following me. We've been saying that all along. This isn't just a one-time deal. This is a uh, commitment, an allegiance change and following Jesus. Following, learning from Jesus, emulating him. Uh, As he says in chapter 4, learning to be fishers of people, even as Jesus is a fisher of people. And we see Matthew immediately rise and follow him. The the call of discipleship is immediate. It's a point of crisis. You've got to do it right then. You've got to follow Jesus. Now, probably Matthew has heard. He's probably heard since Jesus has been around Capernaum. He's heard of the miracles. He's seen what Jesus can do. He's also heard Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. So this isn't necessarily just a blind leap of faith I'm going to follow, but when the point comes, when Jesus calls for discipleship to get in line, to file in, he does it. He does it. Turning, and remember what Jesus' message is, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Turning allegiance from sin and self and trusting yourself to God and trusting yourself to Christ um, as king and following him. And Matthew does it. But then we see things develop. It's very interesting. This, this, really, this, this one act of Matthew following Jesus sets up for what comes next. And what comes next is in verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, okay? So what we see is a scene shift, and we're, all of a sudden we're in a house. Whose house? Probably Matthew's, uh, because uh, one, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He said that before. Jesus has no base of operations, so to speak, right now, although he's spending his time around Capernaum. Second, also, because if you're a tax collector, you're probably fairly well-to-do, and you have a house that can support not only Jesus and his disciples, but also a bunch of other tax collectors and sinners who are going to come here shortly. So this is a pretty big house. Um, And actually, if we were to look at Mark and Luke, we would see that confirmed. This is Matthew's house. This is Matthew's house. 
and they start reclining at table. The idea is the tables were really low, so you recline in a certain way with your feet out from the table. Uh, you're reclining at table. You would recline kind of on someone right next to you a little bit, so this is a pretty intimate setting. Uh, but it's also fairly public. Uh, what you have to understand is it's not like they're indoors with the doors shut and no one can see inside. This is probably in a courtyard. It's a fairly large house. There's enough room for all these people. Probably in a courtyard so passersby could see what's going on with this meal. And the, set, the setting then is, is Matthew is the host. Jesus is the guest of honor. And of course, he's got his entourage of disciples. And he's reclining at table. And this is a pretty big meal. It might even be a full-on feast. And why would Matthew do this? Well, evidently, this is, this is a form of, it seems like, a form of celebration, right? He has just started following Jesus, and he's, he's happy about that. He throws a meal for these people. And we also see who else comes. Behold, it's drawing our attention to a new aspect of the story. Many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So Matthew possibly could have been a, kind of a higher up in the, the tax collector kind of organization. So these could be underlings or they could just be colleagues. But evidently he knows these people. And not only does he know the other tax collectors, he knows these sinners. Now, who are these sinners? Some people say that these are people that the Pharisees are considering as sinners, that from their perspective, from their kind of external religion and their practices, uh, that these are sinners. I don't think that's the case because it's the text, it's the inspired text of Scripture that says and affirms that these are sinners. Uh, and we would take sin in its normal sense. These, what is sin? Sin is uh, doing the things that are against God, that are opposite to God. It's not just naughty things, but it's a slap in the face to God. And evidently, since uh, it's not just that the text presents them as sinners, these are known sinners. In other words, their sin and their lifestyle is visibly sinful. Uh, elsewhere in the book of Matthew, you see tax collectors not only paired with sinners, but paired with prostitutes. That's a pretty visible and public display of sin. It could be other things as well. It's not that the sinners are only prostitutes, but there's other visible uh, acts of sinfulness such that these people, like the tax collectors, remember we said that tax collectors are kind of considered as robbers. They're lumped together with these sinners. They're kind of the lowest of the low at, um, of society in that sense. They're probably fairly well to do, but the common Israelite, or the Pharisees at least, uh, from the standpoint of Israel's religion, they are the dregs of society, and they're public. It's known. And yet, notice what Matthew is doing. He was one of these tax collectors, and he has Jesus as the guest of honor, and evidently he knows these people, and he's inviting them into his meal. Come on, guys. Uh, you, gotta, you guys have heard about Jesus, right? And remember, we said Jesus' ministry is pretty public, they, these folks that are coming, these other tax collectors and sinners, probably know Jesus' basic message, repent for the kingdom of heaven as at hand. Uh, we know the Sermon on the Mount, the kingdom righteousness, and yet these people are coming. They're coming to dine with Jesus. They're coming to hear Jesus. And you have to understand that, like today, and it's kind of interesting that we're 
we're, we're work, working through this during the holidays, right? Because you know we have meals at Thanksgiving and meals at Christmas. And those meals are pretty, pretty intimate, aren't they? Usually they involve our families. We get to spend time with them. We talk about a number of different things. In the best cases, right, it's, it's a sweet and intimate and close time. Well, that's how meals were in the ancient Near East and even more so. Really, there's, there's a huge intimacy and closeness with the people you have meals with, to such a degree that, that it, 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 there's a sort of guilt by association, and we see this with the Pharisees coming up. There's sort of a guilt by association. If you're eating with those people, then that means you must be close with them. You must be affirming of what they're doing. So this is the scene and the setup, and that scene and that setup actually causes two questions, two questions that form our two parts today, two questions that form our two parts. One question is from the Pharisees, one question is from the disciples, but it's both in relation, both are in relation to this meal. And we see the Pharisees asked their first question in verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, now they're not at the meal, right? They're evidently, given their attitude, they, don't want to, they wouldn't come even if they were invited. But like we said, this is probably pretty public, right? They're out in a courtyard. Jesus is hanging out and, um, and eating in a very intimate setting with these people, which sparked the Pharisees. Maybe they're walking by. Maybe they're tailing Jesus, I don't know, but they, they're walking by, they see this happening, and they said to his disciples, they said to Jesus' disciples, uh, this, is, this is kind of a subterfuge, right? The real problem is with Jesus, but they actually go after, they actually go after his disciples to get at Jesus. Notice what they say. Why does your teacher, your master, your, the one in the, the the, 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 the disciple-er, right? The disciple-er in the discipling relationship. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he do that? From the Pharisees' standpoint, their mindset is this. Uh, they want to uh, keep themselves. We've already seen this already in how the text has kind of portrayed the Pharisees. Their mindset is, we, if you're going to approach God... You need to, if you're going to approach God, you need to keep yourself pure. This is how the temple system worked. That uh, you, uh, like with the leper, remember we talked about the leper a couple weeks ago, where he is unclean and so he can't draw near to the temple, which is where God's presence is manifested. And so uh, you wouldn't touch a leper because you would contract his uncleanness and therefore you couldn't draw near to God. Well, the Pharisees drew the analogy then, saying, okay, that, that's, that's analogous to sin. And that's true, even in the Old Testament, that's, that's analogous to sin. Uh, sin and contracting sin means that you can't draw near to God. So we want to be repentant people. We want to uh, draw near to God. We want to do the proper rituals to be able to draw near to God. So we're not going to get near those sinful people, the tax collectors or the sinners, because if we're near them, if we're associated with them, then we're going to contract their sinfulness, we're going to contract their uncleanness, and, we, and therefore we can't draw near to God. It's a separationism for the purpose of saying, oh yeah, we can draw near to God because we've done the proper separation here. 
And so they see Jesus, who's, what is he proclaiming? He's proclaiming, as we saw in the Sermon on the Mount, he's proclaiming kingdom righteousness. He's claiming to be righteous, and he's also claiming to teach about righteousness. And yet, here he is in a very intimate social setting with very publicly sinful people. Why is he doing that? If he is a righteous person, he shouldn't be because he's going to contract their sinfulness. That's their perspective on this. Now, before we go any further, you might already be starting to think and ask the question, who would be the sinners in our day? Right, Those who are publicly known as having a sinful lifestyle. If you think about that, who are they? They might be homeless, drug dealers, prostitutes, corrupt politicians, lesbian, gays, bisexuals, transgender, queer. Those are the public sinners in our day, aren't they? We know that. They have a publicly sinful lifestyle. Now tuck that in your back pocket. Let's go along. Verse 12, so remember, the Pharisees are asking the disciples, not Jesus directly, though their beef is with Jesus himself. It's kind of subterfuge, it's kind of uh, sneaky. But we see in verse 12, when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So he's kind of giving us a metaphor. He's giving us a parable, and it makes sense, right? Um, If you're well, if you're robust, if you're healthy, that's kind of what this word indicates, Well, who um, then you don't need a physician at all, right? Uh, Physicians' uh, services are required when there's illness, when there's disease, when something going on. Obviously, this connects with what Jesus has been doing in healing people, right? He's been healing their illnesses, their physical ailments, their diseases, all of these things. He's been dealing with that. And it just makes sense, right? If you're, the people who need the physician's services are the people who are sick. The physician's not going to waste his time with those who are healthy. But he's drawing a correspondence here. He's drawing a metaphor. Who are the people who are well? The Pharisees in this scenario. That's how he's painting the picture. Who is the physician? It's Jesus. Uh, who are the people who are sick? Well, it's the tax collectors and the sinners, right? So on a, uh, initially, he says, look, Uh, Here are the people who are sick. Here are the people who have an issue, and it's very obvious, and I'm spending time with them. Because what is Jesus' fundamental message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Notice that Jesus isn't condoning their sinful behavior at all, is he? He's calling them sick. He's calling them diseased. He's calling them as those who need his services. What are his services? The services he offers are repentance and faith. So he's not condoning their sinfulness. He's saying that, yeah, they're sinners, but because they're sinners, they need my services as physician. And then he keeps going with this argument. Go and learn what this means, which is kind of a, it would be a common way for a a rabbi in those days to, 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 to talk to his students and say, all right, go and think about this. Go and learn what this is. And then he quotes from the Old Testament, from Hosea 6. Hosea 6, 6. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now, you know what we're about to do. 
uh, every time that the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, uh, the New Testament uses the Old Testament contextually, meaning it uses that original verse in its context as long as it's rightly understood. So to, it's pulling on a link of a chain, uh, and it expects you to get the whole surroundings of that link to be able to draw it in to the New Testament context. So we're going to go back to Hosea. Hosea. Hosea, uh, let me give you a little background on Hosea. So you remember Solomon was the king over all Israel, but then his son, the kingdom split. So there's a northern kingdom of Israel, and then there's a southern kingdom of Judah. Hosea is a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. And by and large, the northern kingdom of Israel was the worst of the two. Uh, Judah had its own problems. They both had their own issues. Um, But uh, Hosea is a prophet to the northern kingdom, the more wicked of the two, in a sense. And what you have to understand, Hosea is about a contemporary with the prophet Isaiah. So this is about 700, 720, 730 years before Christ. Okay? But what you have to understand is that Israel in Hosea is going after idols, it's going after Baals, it's going after all of these things. It's trying to manipulate the Baals, it's trying to manipulate God himself, and there's a lot of blending. There's a lot of syncretism. The idea of syncretism is, yeah, we like something from that religion, and we like something from this religion, and let's blend them together. There's a lot of syncretism going on in the northern kingdom. Yeah, we like the Baals, but if the Baals aren't working out, we're going to go back to Yahweh, and we're going to do his thing. And you see that they're trying to do these sacrifices, do these things to manipulate either the false gods or God himself. And what, um, what happens in Hosea, what happens in Hosea is God characterizes Israel like an unfaithful wife. He says, You're, um, you, you are a wife of whoredom. You are unfaithful to me. And so I'm going to judge you. I'm going to judge you, but judgment's not the end of the story. By Hosea 2, God says, yeah, you're a wife of whoredom, but I'm going to bring you back to myself. I'm going to bring you back to myself in covenant faithfulness. That's kind of the backdrop. That's kind of the backdrop. And so what we see then in the rest of Hosea is kind of these calls of God's calling his people Israel to repentance. He's saying, look, I'm going to judge you. I'm going to punish you, but I'm only going to punish you until you repent and turn back to me. And we see this at the end of chapter 5, which sets up some of the context for chapter 6, where our quote from Matthew is taken. Uh, Hosea 5.14 says this, For I will be like a lion to Ephraim. That's just another name for that northern kingdom. Ephraim was the biggest tribe in the north. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. So there we see God's uh, uh, judgment, his punishment towards his people. But then we see verse 15 in chapter 5 of Hosea. I will return again to my place until... So God's going to go away, so to speak, until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, and in their distress earnestly seek me. So God's going to punish them for their sin until the point where they recognize this is because of our guilt, this is because of our sin, let's seek God earnestly. Okay, that's, that's what they're doing. God says that I will return to them. Notice then chapter 6, verse 1. Here we hear, 
what we hear in verses 1 through 3, and I'm just setting up for the quotation that Jesus is leading us to, in verses 1 through 3, this is Israel speaking. This is Israel speaking, okay? Come, let us return to Yahweh, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know Yahweh. His going out as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Now, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Right? We're going to seek God, and he's going to come back to us, and he's going to heal us. He's going to, and God had already kind of indicated some of that, hasn't he? But there's a piece that's missing. If you notice, there's a piece that's missing. Nowhere in that did they acknowledge their sinfulness. Nowhere did they acknowledge their guilt, which is what God said was the prerequisite for him coming back to them. And so that's why God's not impressed in verse 4. In verse 4, this is God speaking, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as light. See, God says, what you just said to me in 6, 1 through 3, that's a surface repentance. Oh yeah, you're talking about seeking me, but your love is fickle. You're not acknowledging your guilt. You're not acknowledging your sin. You just want the benefits of it. You want the benefits of salvation without acknowledging the depth of your depravity and your guilt. And so I'm still going to judge you until, but verse 15 in chapter 5 still stands, until they acknowledge their guilt. But God supports what he's saying in verse 6. So God's not impressed, and verse 6 is where we get our quote. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. If you notice, comparison to what uh, Jesus is saying in, in, in Matthew 9, uh, Jesus says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And that word mercy in the Old Testament, uh, the, the, what, what Jesus is quoting is the Greek translation of the, the Old Testament. But the Old Testament, the word that's used is this idea of steadfast love. And this idea of steadfast love is covenant love, covenant loyalty. Uh, that's the idea of this term. And so what happened when it got translated into Greek, it got translated into Greek as mercy. But when Jesus is quoting it, he still has it behind the scenes the idea of steadfast love, covenant loyalty. And that's been the whole issue with Israel is that they haven't had any covenant loyalty to him. They've had this superficial sacrifice. Yeah, they've uh, you guys are sacrificing. That might even be sacrificing in relation to the repentance that they're expressing in verse 3. They've got the surface externals, but at the heart, their love is fickle. Their love is fickle. They don't have covenant love. They don't have covenant loyalty. And how does that show up? Well, the way it shows up is actually explained in 7 through 9. And all of this context is feeding into what's going on in Matthew. That's why we're spending time here. Verse 7 in Hosea 6 but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. So they are covenantly disloyal. But notice this in verse 8. How does God know there have no covenant faithfulness, no covenant loyalty? Verse 8, Gilead is a city of evildoers tracked 
with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I've seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. Notice how God knows that they are not a covenantly loyal people. He knows it because of what they're doing to others. He knows it because they're murdering people, because the priests, the ones who are supposed to be closest to God, are robbing others. That's always true in Scripture, especially when you read the prophets. How do we know whether we're loyal to God? Well, if you're loyal to God, that, that shows itself in love to others. That's always the way it works. If you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then you also love your neighbor as yourself. The Israelites aren't loving their neighbor as themselves, therefore they can't be loving God from the heart. And that's what's going on here. So now we bring in, they might have the sacrifice, they might have the externals, but they don't truly have steadfast love. And steadfast love is what God desires most of all. It's not that he uh, despises sacrifice, he's the one who set up that system. But the heart of it, the heart of it is covenant loyalty to God, which will then express itself to others. So with that background, we now jump back to Matthew 9. Why is Jesus quoting this? Let's restart in verse 12, Matthew 9. He says this. When he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Or another way of saying it, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. What's he saying? He's saying, Pharisees, you are the guys that are doing all the externals. You look good. Jesus has already said this, hasn't he? Matthew 5.20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. And we said what he's talking about and what he illustrates in the, book, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount is they had the external kind of looking good, but they didn't obey from the heart. And it's the same issue here. Pharisees, you're doing the sacrifice. You look good externally, but just like... Israel in Hosea's day, you have no covenant loyalty to God. You have no covenant loyalty to God because if you did, you would be moving towards these public sinners and not away from them. That's always how it works. If you love God, you love your neighbor. What were the Pharisees doing? Pharisees essentially were saying, we're better than these sinners, therefore God accepts us more. we got to stay away from those. But the reality is sin it equals the playing field. Sin equals the playing field. The Pharisees are just as bad as sinners as the public sin that they see. Before God's eyes, it doesn't matter how small horizontally the sin looks or how public or not public. Before God's eyes, both are equally sinners. Notice Jesus' message. Jesus' message is not clean yourself up and then God will accept you. It's never that way, is it? It's repent, yes, turn your allegiance from sin and self, turn your allegiance to sin and self and trust yourself to God and trust yourself to me, the one who has authority to forgive sins like we saw last week. 
And then we get the kingdom righteousness from Matthew 5 through 7. Jesus wants kingdom righteousness, but it's as a result of having your sins forgiven. And the only way you get your sins forgiven is to recognize that you have sinned to begin with. Jesus doesn't accept non-sinners because there is no such thing. Verse 13. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. We know who the sinners are. They're the sinners and the tax collectors that meal. Who are the righteous? Well, it's the Pharisees, not because they are righteous, but because they think they're righteous. They think they're acceptable. And Jesus doesn't call righteous people. Now you think again, think back to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus wants righteous people, but he doesn't call righteous people. He calls sinners, and that's it. If you want to come and follow Jesus, you have to acknowledge that you're a sinner. You have to acknowledge that you're no better than the most public, vile sinner that you could see in society. You're no better than them in God's eyes. You're equal with them. If you do not recognize that, you are excluding yourself from God's forgiveness and from following Jesus, because Jesus only takes sinners. The great physician only takes those who are sick, and we are all desperately sick. So when you encounter, when you see those with a visibly sinful lifestyle, do you recoil in self-righteousness, in self-righteous separation, or do you move towards them in compassion? Now, this is kind of incidental in a way, right? Uh, Matthew invites his friends over and they have this meal. Jesus didn't set up the meal. It doesn't seem that way. Matthew did. But, and so it's not like, okay, go have a meal with, you know, that's, this is not necessarily demanding, go have a meal with, with uh, all the homeless people, all the prostitutes. It's not necessarily demanding that, but the point is, as you have opportunity, as you interact with those people, do you move towards them? And some of that moving towards, it's got to start in the heart, right? Just a compassion. So you might just see someone, and you might not have any ability to interact with them at that moment, but does your heart move towards them? And then maybe you do have an opportunity to interact with that person in a socially intimate way. Do you do that? Jesus illustrates that there's a way to have intimate social engagement with visible sinners, and here's the catch, without condoning their sin. That's what the Pharisees thought, right? That if you're spending time with that people, well, you got to condone their sin. In fact, that's what our culture speaks to, right? Uh, Our culture doesn't recognize this category of being able to move with compassion towards an individual without condoning their behavior. The culture doesn't think that way. The culture is saying, if you actually love me, then you've got to affirm what I do. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says you can actually move towards that person and not affirm what they're doing. The Pharisees, really the mindset of our culture and the mindset of the Pharisees is the same, right? If you are, uh, love that person or you're spending time with that person, right, you're connected with that person, you must be affirming what they do. That's the mindset of the Pharisees. It's a legalistic mindset. But the grace mindset of Jesus is God moves towards sinners without condoning their sin. God moves towards sinners without condoning their sin. 
and we probably struggle with the Pharisee side of things, right? We probably struggle with the mindset that, ooh, gross, yuck. Which is true, because of the sin is nasty, but there's still people in God's image. And we are equally in need of God's grace. I'm just as yucky before God's eyes. What is your attitude toward drug dealers, prostitutes, corrupt politicians, the homeless, the lesbians, the gays, the bisexuals, the transgender, the queer community? I'll say it. I'll go on record right here. That is sin. It is wrong. It is condemned by God. Yet, yet, we move towards those people in compassion and care and kindness because that's what Jesus did. You are a sinner just like them, equal in God's eyes, in need of repentance and forgiveness through Jesus. Would you be willing to sit down at a meal with go down the list. Lesbian, gay, tri- bisexual, trans, queer, prostitute, corrupt politician, homeless. Would you be willing to, though not condoning their sin or your sin? The question ultimately is, does repentance reach to the heart, acknowledging your specific guilt before God, which produces, which is where you get forgiveness through Jesus, having And that produces a deep heart loyalty for God, and then you bend that out. You've received grace, and then you bend that out to others with grace and compassion. And the call of verses 9 through 13, the call of discipleship is follow Jesus as a sinner. You only get to follow him as a sinner. You don't get to follow him as a righteous person. He's the one that makes you righteous. He's the one that grows you. There's no denying that there's growth and change. But everyone comes to God as a sinner, and you can only follow Jesus as a sinner. Second, we see this in verses 14 through 17. Follow Jesus into the joy of the new creation. Follow Jesus into the joy of the new creation. Look at verse 14. So we had one question, and Jesus has dealt with it. We get another one. Then the disciples of John, that's John the Baptist, come to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast? but your disciples do not fast. Now, we've already talked about fasting before, back in Matthew 6, 16 through 18. And let me just remind you really quickly what fasting is. Fasting is intentionally abstaining from food, the intake of which is regularly necessary to sustain human life in order to humble oneself and demonstrate one's dependence on God and his word as the ultimate foundation for one's life and all its dimensions. Okay, that's the long definition. Fasting is expressing dependence on God, that you need God and you need his word and you need uh, who he is more than you need food, the most essential thing you can think of in life. That's what fasting does. And so fasting is often connected with mourning over sin, uh, with repentance, with death, Uh, with all sorts of things, because in all sorts of ways, you're expressing your utter dependence on God. Now, the question is, why are John uh, the Baptist disciples, and why are the Pharisees fasting, right? It wouldn't be helpful to know why they're fasting, right? They're saying, 
hey, what's the big deal, right? This time, it's kind of interesting. It's reversed, right? They're, they, they ask the question about Jesus' disciples, but it's still subterfuge, right? Because their critique is ultimately against Jesus. Um, why are you not fasting? And the meal is a good setting for this, right? Because evidently, this is a good meal. This is a feast, right? They're living it, Jesus and his disciples and the tax collectors and Pharisees, they're living it up. This is like Thanksgiving, right? And they're asking, hey, wait a minute. Uh, this doesn't seem to mesh with fasting, right? You should be fasting regularly like we do and the, uh, the Pharisees do. But why are they fasting? Well, remember, if you go back to John, let's start with John, John either because they're John disciples. If you remember back to chapter 3, we talked about how John is that, that, that one, that herald that comes before the king. He's identified with uh, the herald in Isaiah 40, uh, and if you remember the, the, the station, this is the same situation we talked about in Hosea, right? Israel, both the northern and the southern kingdom, they go into exile because of their sin. They go into exile because of their sin. And yet God promised a regathering of Israel in such a way and in such a magnitude that it would be a second exodus, that it would be a return from exile. And you see in the Old Testament, guys like Daniel mourning and looking forward to that. They're, they realize, Daniel is a good example in Daniel 9, he is fasting and confessing his sin and repenting because he realized he's in exile and his people are in exile because of their sin, but he also knows the truth that God has promised the return, the regathering, the establishment of God's kingdom through his Messiah over Israel, over restored earth. That's what Hosea talks about. That's what Isaiah talks about. And so in a broad sweep, we could say it like this. The Pharisees and the disciples of John, they're fasting for the same reason. They are still under the thumb of Rome. They're still not regathered under Messiah as, as Isaiah and Hosea and other prophets uh, foretold. They're still longing for that. They're still longing for that. And so they fast regularly because we're grieved. We're, we're mourning over our sin and our, 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 our nation's sin. And we want what God has promised. We're dependent on what God has promised. And yet Jesus doesn't seem to match that. It's like, what's going on? So how does he answer? Verse 15 and Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is obviously not. It's bad form. It's inappropriate to mourn when uh, if you're, it could be either wedding guest or it could be something like a groomsman. I lean more towards the idea of a groomsman, right? Can the groomsman mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Bad form to do that. You know, Zach and Megan just got married a couple weeks ago, and they were here, right? And if I start um, weeping and mourning when Zach's really happy to be married, that's bad form. That's inappropriate, right? That's really um, bad. And Jesus is saying, you don't do that. But here's what Jesus is also doing. Remember how I said in Hosea, God says, I'm going to judge you. You're an unfaithful wife, but I'm also going to regather you and essentially marry you. When I regather you, Jesus is leaning into that language. He's leaning into that language. 
That, that regathering, that second exodus, that kingdom coming is presented as God reigning through his Messiah with his people. And that's exactly the thing that John the Baptist and the Pharisees were longing for. And what is Jesus saying? The bridegroom is here. The king is here. A big shift has just changed, right? The kingdom of heaven has drawn near. It's not fully there yet. Not all of it's there, but the king is. The most important part, the most important person is there. This is a time of joy. The king is the treasure of the kingdom, and it is inappropriate to mourn or to fast because the king is here. The, the second exodus has begun. It's here in measure, not in fullness, but the king is here. The days will come, and he goes on, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast, which is interesting because the way the Old Testament presents it, it's kind of smushed together. It's like the king is there, the kingdom's there, uh, it's, it, there's the restoration of all things, the new creation. But it's like, well, wait a minute. What, what's he talking about the bridegroom going away? And this is an illusion. Jesus is starting to set up for the teaching of, I'm going to be crucified, resurrected, and ascended on high, right? And he's taken away from his disciples. And then it's appropriate to fast, which is our time, really. Jesus has come. And as we see, it we'll see in a minute here, that, that changes everything, but he's not with us in the fullest sense of that word. And so we mourn, and we long for him to come back. But let's see how Jesus supports this. He, he gives us more uh, illustrations. He gives us more metaphors. Verse 16, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment... For the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Now, this one, uh, hopefully, is fairly easy to grasp, right? You got this old coat, really old coat, right? And you have brand, right off the assembly line, new cloth in this day. And, well, the problem is, is that cloth is going to shrink. And so, unless you kind of pre-wash it and patch it on, it's going to pull away, and it's going to tear tear the, the coat. Now, again, this is a metaphor. Jesus has a correspondence in view. What he's saying is fasting at this time, given the situation, is just as inappropriate as putting a new, unwashed, brand new, off the assembly line piece of cloth on a patch from a coat. Because what's going to end up if you do that is just destruction and havoc. And he uses another picture, picturing the same thing, just different, different objects. Verse 17, neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. So they would take goat skin and they would prep it and everything, but they would uh, ferment the wine in vats and then they would have a secondary fermentation into a goat skin. But what happens, uh, fermentation builds up pressure it releases gas, right? So you've got this skin that's expanding. And as long as the skin is new, no problem. Well, let's suppose you've already had a skin that's gone through that and it's been used and it's been dried out. If you do that, then the pressure from the fermentation process and putting it into an old wineskin, it's gonna burst the skin. It's gonna destroy this old skin, which could still be useful for something. And it's also gonna burst, or it's gonna destroy the wine. So what do you do? You put new wine into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Again, what's he talking about? Jesus is saying, 
Fasting at this time would be like putting new wine into an old wineskin, and all that's going to do is cause destruction. What's the contrast? There's a contrast between a new thing and an old container or fabric, structure, an old structure. And I think what Jesus is getting at here is the cloth correspond the new cloth corresponds to the disciples the new wine corresponds to himself and the disciples but you got this old structure you got this old garment or you've got this old wineskin and we go back to what we've already said about the wedding going on right that that with that second exodus with that return with the king coming that was also in conjunction with a shift in covenant a shift from the old covenant, from the old system to a new system. And I think that's what Jesus is alluding to here. He's saying, I've come, and I'm the one who's inaugurating the new covenant. The new covenant was the ultimate solution to the exile problem, because Israel went into exile because of its sin, because it disobeyed the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the problem was batteries not included. I, 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 the standard's there, and the standard's good, but I can't do it. But the new covenant puts the spirit in someone's heart with, together with, with forgiveness of sins to be able to obey God. And with the coming of the new creation, the second exodus, all of those things, with the king, coming of the kingdom was a new covenant. And the problem is there's a shift. Once Jesus has come, he's the one who's starting up the new covenant. Basically, what Jesus is saying is, your fasting, disciples of John and Pharisees, doesn't recognize the monumental shift in redemptive history that has happened. The king has come. He has started the second exodus. He is inaugurating the new covenant. And nothing will ever be the same. And if you try to go back, if I tried to force my disciples to go back, it would just wreak havoc. There's a new system being booted up, and my disciples recognize it. The ones who are following me, they're part of that new structure and that, that forgiveness of sin, the Spirit coming, which will happen on Pentecost. That's what's going on. So when we follow Jesus, when we come to following Jesus, we come with the recognition that Jesus has begun the new covenant and the new creation. And as a disciple, we're his people. And we, we fast now, we do, but not for the same reason as the disciples, and the, or the, the disciples of John and the Pharisees. They were mourning because they're like, this thing hasn't even started yet. We mourn because the person who has already started these things who has already begun to start the new creation and redeeming people's lives, he's gone now, and when he comes again, he will bring the fullness of that second exodus, a restore, restoration of the new creation, ruling over Israel, and not only over Israel, all the nations of the world. He is going to do that, but we know who the king is. And we mourn because the joy, the centerpiece of the kingdom is not all the cool restored earth and amazing uh, realities of the new heavens and the new earth. As amazing as those things are, and they are real and they will happen, the centerpiece of the new creation is the king. He is the joy. 
and we rejoice looking for that, and we also mourn that it's not fully here. This is so appropriate during, as we think about Christmas, don't we? Right? Christmas, the king came, and he dealt with the most central and important part of the new creation, new hearts, forgiveness. That's why Jesus came. And he's going to bring about the rest of it, the restoration of the world, the restoration of the new creation, the fullness of his kingdom. He's going to bring the rest of it, but he dealt with the most important parts first. So as we come to Christmas, there's sort of a bittersweetness to it. We rejoice that the king has come and has done what he's done for us, for his people who have not yet seen him, but we also mourn because we desire to see him and we desire to see the full, we desire to see Christmas too. The second advent where the king will bring in the rest of the new creation. So there's both rejoicing and mourning for us as his people. Follow Jesus as a sinner into the joy of the new creation. Let's pray. Jesus, we know we can only follow you as we acknowledge that we are sin, sinful and in need of your services as great physician, as the only one who can deal with our depravity, our wickedness, our filthiness. And we thank you that you are the Son of Man who has authority on earth to forgive sins. And Lord, we thank you that that's open today. Lord, I pray that for those who already know you, that we would acknowledge again that, yes, we are sinful and we are in need of your grace and of your forgiveness and confess and repent again. And for those who do not know you, who, who aren't yet tasting the joys of the new creation and the new covenant, that, Lord, you would draw them to yourself. You would grant repentance. And, Lord, we pray that you would help us to display compassion to those who are lost in sin, who are visibly public sinners, and yet we are no better. And we have received grace, and help us to bend that grace out to them. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the joy and the hope of the new creation, the wedding feast of the Lamb. We long for that. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come, that you would establish your kingdom, and do so soon. And yet, we also pray that you would save and rescue more people for yourself. Pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.